Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, as we listen to your word together now, you would open our ears and our hearts to receive it, that you would strengthen us to understand and obey it and glorify Jesus in all that we do. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, before I start my sermon, uh, I thought maybe I'd just briefly reflect on that psalm we just read. I hope you found it hard to say. Uh, taking the role of God as judge of his enemies is very uncomfortable, especially when we ourselves are not uh, victims of violent oppression. I reckon it gets a bit easier to say when you think of our New Testament reading and what they did to Jesus. The apostles applied this psalm to Judas Iscariot, and Israelites could well have applied it to King Jehoiakim. Today we're in Jeremiah 22, which contains a series of oracles against abusive kings that continue on from Jeremiah 21, verse 11. The first nine verse, verses of Jeremiah 22 focus on the general sins of the monarchy. They draw a line from the toxic symptoms of injustice and oppression back to the disease that caused them, the disease of forsaking the covenant and serving other gods. And after that general diagnosis, the rest of the chapter moves systematically through the kings who succeeded Josiah. Uh, his son Shalom, Shalom's brother Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim's son Jehoiachin. And each of them is condemned in the harshest possible terms. Now there's far too much detail here for a single sermon, so I'm just going to look at the first oracle against Jehoiakim, verses 13 to 19. Uh, it plays a guess who game by withholding his name uh, till verse 18, but there wouldn't have been any doubt, I think, among the listeners who this extravagant builder was. Verse 13. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood and on oppression and extortion. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother. Alas, my sister. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my master. Alas, his splendor. He will have the burial of a donkey, dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. Well, you will not find a prophetic oracle anywhere else in Scripture that condemns a king more harshly than this one. Verse 13 describes unrighteousness and injustice as if they were building materials. And what that looks like is that you use the labor of your Israelite brothers and sisters to build a palace 
And then you value that labor at nothing. His own people. You know, that's a reminder of the warning back in Deuteronomy 17 that the king is the first among equals and that he mustn't consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, his brothers and sisters. The features of the palace in verse 14 are described elaborately. It uses rare words for the rare luxuries of wood paneling and the red vermilion paint that was normally reserved for artworks and for the painting of idols. This is what unrighteousness looks like. And the palace, which has been freshly word-painted, is held up in front of the king while God confronts him with a series of hard-hitting questions in verse 15. What exactly do you think the essence of kingship is, Jehoiakim? To have more cedar than anyone else? Was having the most stuff the secret to your father Josiah's happiness? You know, Josiah was well enough provided for physically, but he used his physical blessing not to steal from the people and enrich himself, but to do what was right and just. Those two words are primarily attributes of God. They mean that Josiah imitated God's justice and righteousness. And you know what, Jehoiakim? The result of your father's way of being king was a glorious reign. Now, of course, we and uh, the listeners know that all did not go well with Josiah at the point of his death and his defeat. And verse 10 actually refers to that when it says, Do not weep for the dead king or mourn his loss. But verse 15 is about Josiah's 31 years of life on the throne and what it looks like for things to go well for a king during his life. Right? It's, what, it's about what makes kingship kingly, splendid and glorious. For Jehoiakim, to be kingly means being raised high enough up so that you can look down at everybody else and tread on them. It's how he thought a human got to be like a god. And it showed, incidentally, what he thought God was like. You know, there are actually two rival theologies of kingship at play in verse 15. And they clash openly in, in the next verses. Verse 16 makes three remarkable claims about Josiah's vision of kingship. Look at that verse. Claim number one. God's royal justice and righteousness are made visible when the king defends those who can't defend themselves. Claim number two. When the king defends the vulnerable, things go well, not just for him, but for the whole nation. Everybody prospers. Claim three is the biggie. God says that defending the cause of the poor so that the nation prospers is what it means to know him. How does that even work? Well, it works in both directions, I think. The king shows that he knows God when he imitates God by defending the poor. And when the people find themselves blessed through his kingship, that blessing is an experience of God's own goodness. Doing what is right and just, that is to know God. 
Now, I'm not quite ready to start applying this text, but I want to flag the big issue that this verse raises. Could this be how we are meant to exercise Christ's kingship in the world? Uh, one, one commentator puts it this way. Where does this leave our limp evangelical pietism or our suspicion of all forms of social engagement or the rationalizations by which we excuse ourselves from the ideological and practical battlefields of economics and politics? Is that where we go with this text? Before we go there, let's finish looking at our text from verse 17. We've got a stark contrast to God's true king. Jehoiakim is a taker. Opportunities for dishonest gain capture his attention. They consume his mind. Power for Jehoiakim has only one purpose. And when the terrible verdict comes in verse 18, that fourfold lament of alas uh, repeats the same word translated woe in verse 13 to show that Jehoiakim's death is the consequence of his life. If the king had been a brother to his Israelite family, if he'd been a leader whose splendor made them feel splendid, then these cries of lament would have just poured spontaneously from the people's hearts. But the way Jehoiakim actually behaved makes these words brutally sarcastic. They're like the verbal equivalent of verse 19. A donkey's burial. It's, it's like what we might call a Clayton's burial, isn't it? The burial you have when you're not having a burial. There's no fate more horrible to Israelites than lying unburied. Right, shamed and exposed forever as a traitor to God and his people, prevented from ever resting in peace with your ancestors. And Jehoiakim is condemned to this hell because it is the future he created by the way he ruled. As I said a minute ago, two rival theologies of kingship are at work in this text. But it's not a simple matter of the godless king who exploits the people versus the good king who channels God's blessing. Because Josiah and Jehoiakim both believed that the king's role was to channel God's blessing to the people. Actually, all the pagan nations of that time believed this. And Jehoiakim was basically a pagan king. Pagans back then even believed that a society where the vulnerable were deprived of justice was a society whose king was failing to be that channel of blessing. In other words, the outline of Josiah's and Jehoiakim's theologies of kingship was basically similar. But that's as far as the similarity goes. Because for a pagan king, the success of his reign derived from his uh, ability to manipulate the gods of earth and air and water a king who could secure justice and peace to distribute was a king who had bent the universe to his will. His true God was power. And justice in pagan societies took the form of a rigid, feudal hierarchy built on slavery and privilege, where the king's generosity towards widows and orphans was a way of flexing his power his power to keep the poor alive and compliant 
so they'd continue to generate wealth for the rich. Why did justice look like that in pagan kingdoms like Jehoiakim's? Well, because that's what their gods were like. Israel under kings like Josiah was nothing like this. It had an egalitarian social system that dispersed power and made the king subject to the same laws as the people. Israel was unique. And why was it unique? Because its God was unique. Because of who the Lord is, Israel's king didn't aspire to distribute justice for his own benefit or to keep the poor from starving so he could make more money and avoid rebellions from disaffected peasants. No, his calling was to find glory in the flourishing of the lowly, to exercise a greatness that reflected the greatness of the Lord, the gracious and merciful Redeemer. Now, even Josiah didn't live up to this ideal. The vision of kingship he represented was, of course, only realized in Christ our King. So let's come back to our big issue. The kingship described so strikingly in verse 16 is the kingship of Jesus. And it's a kingship that reflects the character of God precisely as it brings justice to the poor and needy, as it prevents the shedding of innocent blood, as it punishes oppression and extortion. If we push into the rest of Jeremiah, we see that it's also a kingship through which the whole land itself flourishes and all the nations come to recognize that the Lord is God. So, back to the question, what should the kingship of Jesus look like in the world today? Jeremiah 22 describes something more than a spiritual kingdom. It describes a social project that deals judicially with injustice and oppression and violence. And yet, we know that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. No, I believe this is actually the hardest passage in Jeremiah to apply as Christians. Its difficulty is beautifully illustrated by two quotes from the same evangelical scholar. In one book, he writes this. Jeremiah highlights biblical standards for human governments. We might reflect on why it is that Christians tend to get far more vocal over the sexual agenda of their secular culture than over the effects of government policy and legislation on the poor, marginalized, and vulnerable. That's one book. In another of his books, he writes this. Israel's social equality flowed directly from the character of her God. If you forgot the Lord and went after other gods then society would quickly disintegrate into injustice and oppression. So, what does this scholar want us to do? Should we try and fix our society by holding it to God's standards? Well, surely that's going to be a futile exercise if people don't have God in their hearts. Surely we should be preaching the gospel instead of wasting our energy trying to fix an unfixable world. Or maybe the truth lies somewhere in the middle. That's the Anglican place to find it. (laughs) Maybe we should see secular society as partially fixable. After all, you know, where did our Australian social institutions come from that delivered justice to the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow? They came from Christians, didn't they? Specifically from Christians in power. 
Back in the Reformation, people applied Jeremiah 22 to the Christian monarchs of their day. And if you get to be an absolute monarch, you can potentially do a lot of good by imposing some Christian rules and uh, structures on your subjects. But you know where I think the problem begins? is when you use Jeremiah 22 to give these monarchs a mandate from God as if they are somehow spiritual successors to the Davidic dynasty. Historically, the churches that have decided it was their mandate to make society more Christian have been churches with historical ties to the centers of power. Churches in places like the United States, like Africa, even Australia. And it's hard not to think that when we treat our own society as a sort of a modern-day Israel that God calls us to reform, that maybe our judgment has been clouded by the habit of power. So let's try and resolve these difficulties with some biblical theology and a couple of applications. So first, some biblical theology. Um, The life that flowed from God through Josiah to the nation was a river whose flow of water was guaranteed by the covenant. And the blessings that that river brought were blessings promised through Moses. The king channeled the Lord's righteousness to a very specific people, a people God had delivered from slavery, a people, the one people he'd bound to himself by a promise. And so when Jehoiakim and the other pagan kings started serving pagan gods, the Lord's blessings dry up and the nation of Israel ceases to exist for 70 years. And when Israel returned from exile, it regained a land, but not a kingship. Well, we all know what happened next. Christ came as God's true king. All God's blessings flowed through him, and he brought his people God's justice, God's righteousness, by releasing us from captivity to sin, by reconciling us to God. But here's the problem. If Israel had a land without a king, Christ's people have a king without a land. And this is a real problem. Jeremiah's vision can't be realized only on the spiritual plane. To be a humanist, to be embodied, ultimately, this requires an entire society. And so, as Revelation 11 says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. Now, has become means that the world has changed, that Jesus will only fully exercise his kingship in a new creation with his re-embodied people making up a new society whose well-being will be guaranteed by God's new covenant forever. We all know that story. Uh, Let me just sum it up. The Josiah kingship of Jeremiah 22 is not a blueprint for the earthly church because the church is not a civil society. It's not big enough. It doesn't have a land. But Jeremiah 22 isn't a blueprint for the state either because God has entered into no covenant with any state. There are no Christian countries and never have been. Jeremiah's kingdom vision is realized 
only in Christ and the nation made up of those who willingly submit to his lordship and will see him face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. So, here are three applications as we taste what this might mean for us. Number one, even though the church is not yet the kingdom it will become in the new creation, can't it still be an embodied community deeply marked by God's righteousness and justice? Isn't each of our congregations called to live as a, a microcosm of the new Israel? Right? Not just a bunch of people who listen to the word of God together, but a little community that foreshadows the kingdom of Christ and the new creation. When an outsider spends time in your church community, do they know who God is by seeing the way you love one another, by the way the rich serve the poor, by the way the strong defend the vulnerable? Does the joy of salvation run like blood through your veins so that they know what God is like as they see how all is well with your souls? Is the family life that you foster as a church like a little prophecy that lays bare their hearts and makes them say, God is really among you? Secondly, we need to turn our backs on this utopian illusion that we're called to fix society, even partially, by making it behave more Christianly. The mission of the church is to work for righteousness and justice in the world by proclaiming the kingship of Christ and nothing else. Having said that, we need to be clear that proclaiming Christ has to include not just the message of the cross, but the demonstration of the truth and the power of that message in the Christian community. So when your church community involves itself in the civic life of our society, do you draw your public activities into Christ's mission by attaching gospel words to them? Remember that we care for the poor and the needy in this world, not because we hope to fix the world, but because that's who we are. That's who God is. And if the love we show the world is to have any Christian meaning, it must be interpreted to its audience by the verbal message of the cross. You know, uninterpreted acts of justice are no more Christian than Jeremiah burying a linen sash without explaining anything about it is, is prophetic. It's not prophetic. It's just nothing. Just like your acts of justice in the world without the gospel attached to it. Thirdly, this doesn't mean that we should just step back from trying to make this world a more just and righteous place. That's the topic of my next sermon, which unfortunately I won't get to preach till next year. But to anticipate its conclusion, we've, got a, we've all got a duty to work for the betterment of this world, not because we're Christian, but because we're human. 
It's part of our God-given mandate, our vocation as humans in God's image, that we join with our fellow humans, regardless of their creed, to promote justice and to defend the vulnerable. Now, as we do that as Christians, we're going to be able to bring the wisdom of Christ to bear on that task. And so the way we do that is going to bear testimony to his kingship, but there is nothing intrinsically Christian about doing the work of a politician or a policeman or a plumber. There's nothing intrinsically Christian about voting liberal, labor, green, or teal. There's nothing intrinsically Christian about donating to famine relief or running the PNC or cutting your carbon emissions. Christ is the one true king of this world, but in the present age, this world has given over, given over to the spiritual forces of evil, rulers, and powers. The one place where the possibility now exists of a society that truly embodies God's Justice and righteousness is the church. So let's give the world a preview of Christ's new creation kingship and boldly call the world to join us to kneel joyfully before King Jesus while there's still time.